Well, good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I am Sean. I am the associate pastor here at 116 Bible Church, Wachaga. And I am very happy to have you here to worship the one true living God with us this morning. Uh, we are actually picking up where we left off in our trek through Romans. So if you will turn with me to Romans chapter 9. We will be picking up in verse 19, where we left off once upon a time. I don't remember how long ago it was. Uh, so Romans 9, beginning, beginning in verse 19. And while you're finding it, uh, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer and ask him for his guidance and his illumination in his infallible and error word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you. God, as one people, as your people, whom you have called by the name of your Son, out of sin and into salvation, out of darkness into light, out of death and into life. Father, there is no greater honor. There is no more wonderful pleasing privilege than to gather together under the banner of Christ and to lift up his name. May we take this seriously. May we accept this humbly. And Lord, we pray that you and your word and your gospel and your truth and your son would be the focus this morning. Would be that which we are occupied with. Lord, that we would not be distracted by the things and the cares of this world, Lord, that so eagerly claw for our attention and seek to drag us from you and from your word. But Lord, that we would use this time gathered together this morning to instead bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus. Lord, as he himself taught us to pray, hallowed be your name. And we ask all these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. All right. So, again, Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 19. And I ask if you are able, that you would also be willing to stand in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Again, Romans 9, beginning in verse 19, the word of God says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. 
as he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom, and we would have been made like Gomorrah. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Pardon me one moment while I take a quick sip. All right, so if you know me, if you have had the opportunity to, to listen to me preach before, you know I like to start with review. So let's begin with that. Let's start with the review. We are in the middle of a book called Romans, which is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in a city called Rome. Pretty easy, pretty straightforward. This is likely a church, as most of you know, this is likely a church that Paul probably hadn't been to. Uh, but it, was, it might be a church, uh, it was a church that he likely knew maybe a couple of people from his missionary journeys. But uh, it was uh, in all likelihood for the majority of the people there, he didn't know them. Um, he did know, um, like most like most people did at the time, that uh, Rome had a very high concentration of, Jewish, of the Jewish population. So outside of first century Israel and Judea, Rome had a very high concentration of Jewish people. So he's talking to, very likely, a mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles. And he begins by talking about uh, essentially the different paths that each of these groups of people have taken, their, their backgrounds, which God used to lead them to Christ. He talks about the, the Gentile growing up without the law, without that benefit, without that privilege, um, what that looks like. And then he moves on to talking about what the, the privilege of growing up with the law as a Jewish person what that looked like, um, and the different sins that accompany each of those backgrounds um, and the different types of temptations. Um, and then he takes us, uh, remember, this is a church that he probably didn't know many people, so he wanted to make sure they were getting the gospel. So what is he doing? He's hammering home the gospel. He's giving them the gospel truth of Jesus Christ, and he's wanting to make sure that they know that their faith is in the biblical Christ and not in some false idea that was floating around because um, – as we've uh, recently just finished talking about in our Sunday morning Bible studies, there were false Jesuses, false gospels being preached at this time. Uh, the idea that Jesus didn't actually come in the flesh, the idea that Jesus merely only appeared to be human. This was a big one floating around in the mid to late first century. Um, the idea that Jesus wasn't actually human, he just appeared to be human. This was based on a Greek concept that what is physical is bad and what is spiritual is good. Obviously, these people weren't familiar with the concept of demons because they are spiritual and bad, um, but or with the concept of God creating the world and saying it is good. So, so they had this uh, false dichotomy in their mind: physical means bad, spiritual means good, um, and saying, well, because of that, obviously Jesus couldn't come in the flesh because then that would be bad. Um, so this false idea and a lot of a lot of variations of this floating around. 
and uh, Paul uh, and John actually went to great lengths to um, to correct that. And Paul here in the book of Romans is presenting to them the true biblical Christ, who actually came in the flesh, and not just came in the flesh, but came as a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and came as not just a not just a not just a Messiah, not just a savior to the Jews only, but also to the Gentiles, and how that itself also fulfills scripture. Um, and then if you recall, we uh, ended last the last time we were in um, we were in the book of Romans. Uh, we we went through some of the objections that Paul covers. Um, you know he'll he'll make a point and then he'll say, and then some might say, or then you might say, and he'll uh, give a possible objection to what he just stated, and then he will show how that objection is nonsensical, how it is um, not scriptural and is founded on any right thinking. It is in fact founded upon faulty thinking. And we see uh, in chapter nine uh, where what we left with, uh, where we left off, was God's purpose in the seeming rejection of Israel. And how that was manifested, ultimately, in the rejection of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. We see uh, Paul addressing, and he's tying this to not just uh, not just Israel's rejection of the Messiah, but he's tying this to God's sovereignty in Israel's rejection throughout time and space. How Israel has uh, how how God chose Israel from the seed of Adam. How God chose Israel from the seed of Jacob. How God chose Israel uh, from the seed of Abraham, from the seed of Jacob, from the seed of Isaac. And how he, how God chose one line rather than another. And how God chose one people rather than another. How God chose one person rather than another. And we see that all the way through. Um, and that's where... That's where we leave off, um, where he even gets up to the time of Moses, where he says, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. And then he talks about the story of Pharaoh and Moses, and how, yes, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, but also God removed his restraining grace and hardened Pharaoh's heart as well. So we see here, uh, Paul's really making the point where God's been making choices, God's been choosing, God's been electing since time began. This isn't a new concept. This isn't, this isn't something novel. This isn't a, a new idea. This is something God's been doing since the beginning of time. He's been choosing one line over another. He's been choosing one person over another, and that brings us to verse eighteen, where Paul said, "Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens." And now we are up to our passage today. So, our passage today. What is Paul saying? What is he talking about? Let's dive right on in. Verse nineteen. You will say to me then, "Why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will?" So, in, in usual fashion by this point, Paul is bringing up a likely objection that someone is going to bring to the very thing that he has said about God 
choose having mercy on whom he will and hardening whom he wills. And he brings up this subjection, and this subjection is phrased in such a way which is actually very reminiscent of what we see throughout the Old Testament where, where the idea of uh, somebody, of how preposterous it being for somebody to, to question the will of God actually just confirms God's sovereignty. But what we have here is actually a slight twist on that. We have somebody questioning not just God's will, but God's justice. Well, then how can he find fault with anybody? We're just doing what he made us to do, right? I mean, if we have no say in the matter. This is the objection that Paul is anticipating. And as as a, a great mentor of mine used to say, uh, is I'm not a personal mentor, I just really looked up to this guy. R.C. Sproul, if you've heard of him, who went to be with the Lord uh, just over, wow, I think it was three years ago. Man, that's been a while. Um, just over three years ago, he went to be with the Lord. Um, and as he used to say, uh, Paul was a teacher par excellence. Um, don't feel bad. He was also inspired by the Holy Spirit, so it's it's okay right here. He was he was uh, uh, operating under inspiration, um, but he was a teacher par excellence. He he knew to anticipate objections to the things that he was proclaiming. He knew the likely things people were going to say in response to these points that he's making. Not just points that he's making, points that he's drawing from Old Testament scripture and using that to support what he's saying. He knows what people are going to say. That's not fair. That's not right. How dare he? Why would God do such a thing? And what does Paul do in response? Does he give a straightforward answer to address the question being asked? No. He actually cuts through the words being used, and he gets at the heart of what the objection that, is, that he is anticipating, what that objection actually points to. This isn't a genuine question being raised looking for an actual answer. This is an objection being raised in order to justify sin. This is an objection that comes up in order to make myself feel better about the wrong things I do so that I can emotionally distance myself from it and I can soothe my conscience a little bit. This is an objection used to placate myself. This isn't, a, this isn't an objection in search of an answer. This is an objection in search of validation. So, Paul's response, But indeed, O man, in verse 20, who are you to reply against God? Paul cuts through the noise. He cuts through the chatter. And he says, Who are you, O man? Oh, you, your, your translation might say, who are you a human being? Or who are you a mere mortal? To answer back to God. Who are you to question God and what it is he chooses to do with his creation? Paul's stabbing right at the heart of what this objection is really getting at. Not... There's a, I'm confused here. Help me figure this out. But instead, oh, well, now I have an out. And Paul says, no, you don't. 
Paul is saying, who are you as a mere human being to reply against God and his own choices of what he does with his creation? And the truth be known, if truth be told, how popular and how prevalent is that attitude today? I can't go on I can't go on a social media website without seeing essentially that same objection being raised. Without seeing that exact same attitude. But even that aside, how often in my own heart does, does the old man try to well up with pride and try to assert such, such a similar objection? Try to rebel against the very word of God. How often in my own heart does this ugly sin show itself? And if I'm being honest, it's probably far too often. And if you're being honest, it's probably the same. But indeed, oh man, who are you to reply against God? The, the implication to this initial response being, God doesn't answer to man. Man answers to God. Man has to give an account one day to God, not the other way around. There is a, there's a story of a Holocaust survivor who uh, once said that if God is real, when I get there, he'll have to answer to me. That is arrogant. That is blasphemy. And that comes from a place of pride, a place of self-worthiness that is unearned by the human condition. To put myself in a position as judge over the judge of the universe. To put myself in a position of arbiter over the one who actually arbitrates. Who does with his creation as he pleases. Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Will the creature say to the creator, what are you doing? And if you if you go back to where, uh, to the verses that this is actually referencing, verse, uh, in verses 20 and 21, it's referencing verses in Isaiah and Jeremiah that talk about um, the potter having control, having power over the clay to do with as he pleases, you will see that these, that this this response that the creator is giving, to, or that the creature rather is giving to the creator, is nonsense. It, it's the it's the creature rising up and saying, essentially to the creator, how dumb can you be? Why would you make me like this? Do you know what you're doing? That's the attitude. Of, the, of this very line of questioning here is, is not simply seeking answers but seeking to not just question God but to criticize and condemn God for choosing to do with his creation as he pleases. Will the thing form say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? The idea here being Paul saying that's an absurd scenario. For a creature to rise up against the creator and say, why have you made me like this? And just as absurd, if not more so than this, 
is the man rising up against God saying, why have you made me like this? Why have you chosen me? Why have you chosen to treat me this way? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Just as the potter from the same from the same lump of clay, clay that is alike, 100%, both inside and out, can take from that lump two pieces, and from that, from those two separate pieces, he fashions one vessel, one, your translation might say jar, or something like that, one vessel, one pot, one jar, to be used for something honorable, to be used for something glorifying, to be used for something appealing, to even be used for something beautiful. But from the other piece, from that same lump, he can make something like a garbage can or a chamber pot or something to that. So from the same lump, we have one vessel designed to glorify God in its beauty, in its use for honor, in its use for decoration, maybe. And from the other, the other piece from the same lump, something that glorifies God by its use in a dishonorable way, by its use for a dishonorable end. This is a hard topic, friends. I know that. This is this isn't something. This isn't something that the human mind, the human heart, really wants to take in. Because we tend to we tend to reflect our own condition onto God and say, "Well, how can He do this without being arbitrary? How can He do this without?" without rhyme or reason. That's not what's going on here. He's not simply choosing to honor one by saving and dishonor another by condemning. By any arbitrary or even meaningless sense of standards. He's not even choosing something that is in any of us. That's the idea. That's the that's the idea behind the same lump of clay being used to make two different vessels. The clay is identical. It's the same lump. It's identical in every way. The difference is the purpose for which the vessels were created. And God, in his benevolence, instead of taking from this, this lump of clay that stems from Adam, who fell from grace, instead of taking this lump and throwing it all into the fire and destroying it, in his love, in his mercy, 
in his kindness, in his compassion, and in his grace. And yes, even in his holiness. He has chosen from that sinful lump certain vessels to be saved, to be used for an honorable use. And those whom he has not chosen, they don't get injustice. Just because you don't get mercy doesn't mean you don't get injustice. Doesn't mean you get injustice. Mercy is undeserved. Those who receive it didn't earn it. We didn't do anything for it. There was nothing in us that God said, that's the spark, that's what I'm looking for, choose them. No, because we're all from the same lump. Instead, by his own good pleasure and the counsel of his own infinitely wise counsel, he chose some to be saved, some to honor him in his grace, in his mercy. And he chose some to be used to honor him in his wrath and in his righteousness. Nobody gets injustice. You get mercy or you get justice. Nobody gets injustice. Sorry, one more moment. Verse 22, what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory? That's verses 22 and 23 of our passage today. What is Paul saying? He's saying, and he's asking this in question form. It's really not a question. It's rhetorical. It's a statement. What he's saying is, what God is doing is he's showing to his children, to those whom he has chosen, the vessels created for honor. He is showing to them not just his mercy and his grace that he has bestowed upon them, but the backdrop of that mercy and grace, which is justice and righteousness and wrath. He is showing that the alternative to his mercy and grace is the justice that awaits anyone outside of his electing grace. And that is justice and wrath. Just as, and this is this is an old metaphor, just as the diamond shines brightest against the black belt, so does the grace and the mercy of God shine brightest, most glorifyingly against the backdrop of his righteousness and his wrath. If it were not for these, this illustration, this execution of his justice, could the people of God truly understand and appreciate the grace that they have received? Probably not. This is this is something that God does in order to to make us holy, as He is holy, to make us less like these lost sinful people that He found 
more like his son, Jesus Christ. And this backdrop of justice that we see that gets enacted against those whom he has not chosen, that is what makes that grace, makes that mercy, makes that love and forgiveness shine more brightly and more brilliantly than it would otherwise. So what does he do? He endures. He endures the blasphemy. He endures the sacrilege of these vessels of dishonorable use in order to make known the riches of his glory to those whom he has created for mercy, to his vessels of mercy. Just as he did when he removed Adam and Eve from the garden, instead of killing them right then, he removed them from the garden and endured their sin, the sin that they brought into this world. He continues to endure these vessels of wrath. And he continues to endure this the sin that they heap up against, against him and the wrath that they are heaping up for themselves. He continues to endure that when he would be perfectly just and right in destroying all of them immediately, in destroying all of us immediately. Instead, he endures. Why? Not just, not just for his benefit, but for the benefit of his people. He does it to glorify himself, yes, but to glorify himself in the lives of his people. And not just to glorify himself in the lives of his people, but to bring them along the path of righteousness. He does that for you and for me. though that is secondary to the glory that he gets from such an action. And there is there's much ink spilled over this which he had prepared beforehand for glory. And, and, and then at the end of verse 22, the uh, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Who does the preparing? I think Taken in context, Paul is very clear who did the preparing. God himself has done the preparing in the creation of such vessels. And it is throughout the life of each individual that that preparation is realized. That that preparation comes to, not just ceases to be an abstract idea and becomes concrete in the life of each individual, whether you are prepared for destruction or that you're prepared for mercy and glory. Verse 24, Paul says, Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now here Paul is, is giving back to a lot of what he, sp- what he spends a lot of time focusing on in, in the book of Romans, and that's the idea that salvation has not just come to the house of Israel. Salvation has actually come to the world to Jew and Gentile alike. Even us whom he called, this idea of God, God's effectual calling, God, God's, God's calling of an individual in such a way that it actually brings about the desire.
this call that God does in the life of each one who ends up believing. This true, genuine gospel call. Uh, not simply the idea of the gospel, the external gospel call, which is something we are all commanded to do and to obey, but this internal call when the Spirit accompanies the proclamation of the gospel to an individual and so changes their heart to make them, to change them from a child of wrath to a child of mercy. Even us. Paul, including himself, whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And now he goes in reverse order, talking about the Gentiles first, and then the Jews in his references from the Old Testament. Verse 25, as he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people, who were not my people, and her beloved, who was not beloved. And it shall come to pass... In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Now Paul is taking an excerpt from a book that was actually intended originally for the northern kingdom of Israel. This was a proclamation by God to the northern kingdom of Israel through the prophet Hosea about their pending judgment at the hands of the Assyrians. And this judgment that Paul is addressing here, I mean, if you read the history of the Northern Kingdom, you don't, you don't get the sense of the people who ever worship the one true living God. In fact, every king is bad news. In the southern kingdom, you get a little good news every now and then. It's like bad king, bad king, bad king. Wow, there's a good king. Bad king, bad king, bad king. Another good king. Wow. But in the northern kingdom, it wasn't that way. It was bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king. Over and over and over and over. Each one doing what was right in his own eyes, not leading the people to God as instructed, as commanded of the king. But instead, leading them away from God to do whatever it is they wanted to do. Each man doing what was right in his own eyes. Very reminiscent of what happened after every single judge. And this idea that Paul is taking this and he's saying, I will call them my people who were not my people and her beloved who was not beloved. This is a, this is a prophecy of a restoration of the people of the northern kingdom of Israel that Paul is applying to Gentiles who have never been called God's people who have never been called beloved and he's saying this idea if God can restore a fallen people to himself of course he can bring those who, has, who have never known him into his fold. He can bring a people who not only have never known him, but have never heard of him. A people who have a people who have never even considered worshiping the God of the Bible. Of course he can graft them in. 
Of course, he can bring a people who was never his people to him if he can bring a people who have gone so far astray that he's calling them not my people. If he can bring them, he can bring in the Gentiles. If he can bring in, if he can bring in wayward Israelites who have gone generations without without a thought of him, surely he can do the same for a people who have never heard his name before. I will call them my people who are not my people. Christian, breathe that in. Dwell on that. That's you. You were not his people. But if you are in Christ, he now gives you the privilege of the title, my people. If you are in Christ, he gives you who once was not beloved. He gives you the privilege of the title. Beloved. Christian, if you walk away with nothing else today, walk away with that. Walk away with that. That in Christ you have been granted access to the Father. You have been adopted into his family. He has taken you from the orphanage of Satan and brought you into the family of of God. He has taken you from the streets and given you his own name. That in itself is remarkable. That in itself is something to glorify him for forever. It shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. You're not just given a title. You're not just given a name. You're given a status and a position in the family of God. Not, not merely as a servant. Not merely as a hired hand. But as a son. As a daughter of the king. That, my friends, is glorious. So that's what he said in Hosea. I'm sorry, I need one more drink. I mean, I need so many if this was a two-way conversation. Just saying. But as, but also as Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, this is verse 27. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea. The remnant will be saved. So not only does not only does Paul expand this Jewish perception to include Gentiles and shows how that's consistent with Old Testament prophecy. He also shows again, re-emphasizing oh, this is a point he's made before in the letter Reemphasizing that just because you go by the name Israel 
does not make you a son of the living God. And we talked, we talked about this weeks ago. It does not matter what your bloodline is. It does not matter who your parents are, who your grandparents are, who your great-grandparents are. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you, if you as an individual can trace your lineage all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It doesn't matter. You are not saved on your DNA. You're not saved on your biology. You are saved 100% by the grace of God. Amen. By those whom he has chosen. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. That's it. You, you, can't, you can't show up on Judgment Day and with your papers and say, no, but my family goes all the way back. It doesn't matter. The question is, are you clothed in the righteousness of Christ? Because if you're not, then all that is going to be burned up like so much dross before it. All that is going to evaporate in the fires of his wrath. It'll be gone. Because you don't stand there based on your family lineage. You stand there based on the righteousness, whether it is yours or Christ's, depends on the mercy of God. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. So there's just there's not just this idea of it's not about your bloodline. There's this idea of but I have kept for myself. I have reserved for me a remnant from this from this people called Israel. I have reserved for myself. I kept for me a certain number. And I'm not, not one of those people who's going to try to tell you what the number is. I don't know. I'm not God. God knows that number. God knows whom he has kept for himself from the people of Israel. Whether that's actually 144,000 or not, I don't know. But he's got a number. And he has kept them for himself. He says in 28, For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness. Because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And again, this is talking about a, a past judgment that has come upon the nation of Israel. But also, it's very reflective, very prophetic regarding a future judgment coming on the whole world. And this idea that it will be a short work. He will cut it short in righteousness. That... He's not, this isn't a God who delights in destruction and damnation to the point to where he's going to draw it out just to be sadistic. He's going to cut it short. He's going to finish it. He's going to do so in his righteousness. He's going to make it a quick work because he's not interested in tormenting his people. He's interested in getting his people saved into his family and then bringing that judgment quickly 
upon the rest of the world and then renewing the creation. The Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, your Bible might say, as Isaiah prophesied, we're saying the same thing. Unless the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, that's a, an Old Testament title, unless the Lord of hosts had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. So no, it doesn't depend on your family line, but the fact that God continues to bless you with one, that's an act of God's grace. And from that family line, from that original Israel, that nation state, that people group called Israel, he has kept, he has given them a family, he has given them a lineage in order to save for himself a remnant. So Paul is here showing the graciousness of God in salvation and his sovereignty in that process. From beginning to end, regardless of who you are, regardless of where you're from, regardless of who your family is. He is showing, Paul here is showing the church in Rome just how intentional they are to God. Just how purposeful he has acted in saving whom he saves and passing over whom he does not. So Christian, I want to encourage you today. Glorify God in his intentionality in choosing you. Don't, don't get caught up and bogged down with objections and replies against God to try to justify sin, to try to justify anybody's sin. This is a big mistake we so often make is not just coming up with rationalizations to justify our own sin, but coming up with rationalizations to justify the sin of those whom we love and want to believe are going to be with us in heaven. Don't get so caught up. Don't get dragged down into that. If the Bible calls it a sin, it's sin. It doesn't matter how much you love them. In fact, if you truly love them, you preach the gospel to them. If you truly love them, you give them the truth. You wouldn't try to do hermeneutical acrobatics just to try to make it fit. You wouldn't look at your Bible every which way and start taking a pair of scissors, cutting out verses that disagree with what it is you're trying to make yourself believe. You would preach the truth to those who need it. And my friend, we all need it. So don't get caught up in these rationalizations, in these mental gymnastics. Instead, glorify God in his sovereign saving work in your life and in the lives of the family that he has blessed you with, the family of God, the church. And if you don't belong to one, I encourage you to find one. I'm not saying you have to join 116 Bible Church Chicago. I'm saying find yourself a community of believers. Join and get plugged in. That's my encouragement to you. And together, worship and honor and glorify God as he has commanded. And do so knowing that he was purposeful and intentional 
and saving you and everyone you call brother and sister. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you as God, as a needy people. God, as people who were broken when you found us. And you didn't just make us whole. God, you made us new. And Lord, we we long for, we crave for the day when you, re, when you remake our outside to reflect the way you have remade our inside. When you have renewed our body to match the way you have renewed our hearts. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word and we praise you, God, not just for, for delivering it to us, Lord, but for preserving it for us. God, for translating it for us through your servants, Lord, and for bringing it to us in such a way that we, your people, can read it and by the light of your spirit can understand it. And by that same spirit, rejoice and worship you in concert with those who have come before us. Lord, we ask for an increase of the realization of the mercy you have granted your people. And we ask for an increase of the realization of the wrath that awaits those who are not in Christ. And we ask that that would motivate us, drive us, push us to take the gospel from beyond these walls to every living creature. That we might see some saved. And your family and your kingdom grow. Be with us, Lord, as we leave this place. Bless our encounters with all those we come into contact with. May they all, Lord, may they all be gospel encounters. And may they bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus. For we ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen.